Tune Review and Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Tune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com or by calling 0141-772-3976. That's 0141-772-3976. This is from The National on Friday the 10th of February from the Politics section. Rachel Hamilton, MSP, failed to disclose links with hunting to Holyrood. This is written by Hamish Morrison. A Tory MSP repeatedly failed to declare an interest in blood sports while attempting to water down hunting legislation, The National can reveal. Rachel Hamilton, who part-owns a Borders Hotel with strong links to the Lauderdale Hunt, sits on the committee responsible for scrutinising the Hunting with Dogs Bill, which was passed in January. The Conservative MSP for Ettrick, Roxburgh and Berwickshire, who has previously faced questions about her links with hunting, has been described as one of the Bill's fiercest opponents, but at no point in her scrutiny of the Bill did she alert colleagues or the public to the fact she benefits from her links with hunting? The extent to which parliamentary rules actually require disclosure in these circumstances is controversial, but she is accused by the SNP of violating the spirit of the rules. Hamilton part owns the Bucklew Arms in St Boswell's, which is around £1.3 million, according to its most recent accounts, which regularly hosts supporters of the Lauderdale Hunt, including providing the setting for its supporters' club annual dinner last March. The hotel, where rooms go for as much as £100 per night, also hosted a letter-writing workshop for Lauderdale Hunt supporters to aid them in writing letters of objection to the Hunting with Dogs Bill. Holyrood's Rural Affairs Committee, of which Hamilton is a member, was tasked with scrutinising the legislation as it passed through Parliament and met ten times to discuss the bill. Hamilton did not once draw attention to the fact she materially benefits from her links to blood sports as she discussed the bill, which closes loopholes in previous anti-hunting laws, making the rules much tougher. During the final stage of the bill's scrutiny, MSPs are allowed to attempt to amend the legislation and Hamilton tried unsuccessfully to change the law to create exemptions for hunting with dogs in certain circumstances. The MSP Code of Conduct requires members to declare an interest before speaking in debates or committee meetings if the subject of those discussions relates to their financial interest. While the rules around declaring interests are fairly narrow, Many MSPs take the spirit of the law to be broader than how it is set out in the Code of Conduct. 
Tory MSP Finlay Carson, for example, at a meeting of the Rural Affairs Committee on November the 16th, mentioned an interest as someone who has been on a shoot. Meanwhile, her Conservative colleague Donald Cameron declared an interest during a debate on the bill because he is the owner of the Aknakari estate, the historic seat of the Clan Cameron, which hosts deer-stalking trips. The Bucklew Arms Hotel also advertises deer-stalking and game-shooting on its website. Hamilton made one reference to her register of interests on which her involvement with the Bucklew Arms Hotel is listed, but mentioned her interest in the hospitality sector, not specifying that the business also has links with blood sports. The SNP said her failure to be transparent about her links with hunting falls foul of the spirit of the guidelines, if not the letter, and said she should consider referring herself to the Parliamentary Standards Watchdog. A spokesperson for the party said, Throughout the recent passage of the Hunting with Dogs Bill, Rachel Hamilton was one of the most outspoken opponents of the new measures. That is entirely within her rights. However, despite her long association with the hunting community being very well documented, at no point did she declare an interest when her hotel business clearly benefits from hunting. It even hosted the Lauderdale Hunt Supporters' Annual Dinner last year. The spokesperson added, The rules about making such declarations are in place to protect both the individual and the Parliament to make sure no accusations of improper behaviour. Rachel Hamilton's failure to declare her associations with hunting falls foul of the spirit of the guidelines, if not the letter. She should consider referring herself to the Parliament authorities on this matter. A spokesperson for the Scottish Conservatives said Hamilton had no case to answer. That article was written by Hamish Morrison. This is from The National on Friday the 10th of February from the news section. Rosyth, Royal Navy admit HMS Prince of Wales warship has another fault. This is written by Ali McRoberts. The Royal Navy have been asked if HMS Prince of Wales is an unlucky ship and why it keeps breaking down after more faults were found in the £3 billion aircraft carrier. It retreated to Rosyth last October to repair significant damage to the starboard propeller shaft and last week MPs on the Defence Select Committee were told there are similar issues with the port side shaft. Committee Chairman Tobias Elwood, MP, suggested the warship had spent more time in dry dock than at sea, before an exasperated Marc Francois, MP, said the UK cannot have a carrier with a limp. A full investigation into the root cause of the failure is underway, as Mr Francois said the Prince of Wales was commissioned in December 2019. She suffered two serious leaks in 2020, According to the Times, between October 2020 and April 2021, she spent 193 days having that water damage repaired. In August 2021, she set sail for the East Coast. She then breaks down and has to be towed to Rosyth. What fundamentally is the problem with this £3 billion warship? What actually is the problem? Vice Admiral Paul Marshall told the committee that the repairs to the HMS Prince of Wales starboard shaft 
should be completed in the spring. She will then sail from Rosyth to her home base of Portsmouth for pre-planned maintenance and rejoin operations in the autumn. Elwood asked, This has obviously been a bit of a setback. I think it arguably may have spent more time in dry dock than it has at sea. He asked if HMS Queen Elizabeth, the first of the aircraft carriers to be assembled at Rosyth Dockyard, had suffered the same problems. Vice Admiral Marshall said they had carried out checks and added, We do not believe there is a class issue with the shafts in the carriers. With the defects to the Prince of Wales's shaft, we have obviously done appropriate checks on the port shaft. We found similar issues with the port shaft and we will be repairing the port shaft at the same time as the starboard shaft. Francois said, She is the same design as HMS Queen Elizabeth, which has not had any of these problems. Is the Prince of Wales just an unlucky ship? Or is there something that went wrong with the build of the Prince of Wales that did not happen with the Queen Elizabeth? Why does the Prince of Wales keep breaking down? We cannot have, when you add in the air group, a £5 billion carrier with a limp. Elwood asked if the problems with the warship was something that happened while at sea, or was it something that happened in the build itself? Vice Admiral Marshall replied, In parallel with the repair, we are carrying out a full investigation into the root cause of the failure. That investigation is nearing completion. It would be inappropriate for me to discuss conclusions ahead of briefing to our own ministers. That article was written by Ali McRoberts. This is from The National on Friday the 10th of February from the news section. Scottish Olympian Duncan Scott joins West Lothian Learn to Swim class. This is written by Caitlin Graham. Youngsters in West Lothian have participated in a once-in-a-lifetime swim class with top Tokyo Olympics champion Duncan Scott. Scott is one of the UK's most decorated athletes from the Tokyo Games and after West Lothian Leisure was recognised as Learn to Swim Provider of the Year, he made a splash at Excite's Broxburn Sports Centre. More than 130 children participated in the swimming lessons, learning vital life skills such as floating and treading water, and vital skills to move through water with different strokes and streamlining. Programme Ambassador and Scotland's all-time top medal-winning Commonwealth athlete Scott shared knowledge and skills with the youngsters during the lessons delivering some teaching on poolside and in the pool. He said, Swimming pools are vital community hubs. Without pools, we would literally be putting lives at risk, so it's great to see so many happy, smiling faces today. Excite is one of the 37 aquatic providers delivering the Learn to Swim framework, a partnership between Scottish Swimming and Scottish Water. Scott added, It's fantastic to see the work Excite West Lothian are doing around Learn to Swim to become Scottish Water Learn to Swim Provider of the Year and the programme is set to grow by more than 25% over the next three years. There's been a real buzz in the lead-up to Duncan's visit. Broxburn is our largest site, welcoming more than 1,500 youngsters weekly, so it's great to have a visit from such a role model. 
Excite is a community hub that increased the capacity of youngsters learning to swim from 3,855 in May 2021 to more than 5,031 in August 2022. This resulted in an additional 1,300 children attending lessons every week, with a further 200 children to join the programme in February 2023 as the programme expands. Scott's fellow Learn to Swim ambassador and Paralympian, Tony Shaw, is also behind the campaign to develop a generation of confident, safer and competent swimmers. Scott said, Learn to Swim has been a major success and we see children improve their swimming skills on a weekly basis. We know Duncan's visit will leave a lasting impact on our community's next generation of swimmers. The earlier that a child becomes familiar with the aquatic environment and being in and around water, the better. It may be someone from the programme follows in Duncan's footsteps, but most importantly, we hope they continue to inspire children to learn to swim. The National Learn to Swim framework has already provided lessons to more than 100,000 youngsters and wants to reach a further 100,000 by 2025. The next step is to create Generation Swim, a platform for children to achieve their best in and out of the pool. That article was written by Caitlin Graham. This is from The National on Friday the 10th of February from the Politics section. Scottish Tory on CCTV taking SNP leaflets amid sterling by-election. This article is written by Alexander Elliards. A Scottish Tory activist campaigning ahead of a crucial by-election has been caught on camera apparently removing other parties' leaflets from a private closet. CCTV footage shared online with The National seems to show an activist enter a building with a dog, collect up and pocket campaign materials and leave again. The video shows yellow-coloured leaflets being taken. The National was told that campaign material from the SNP, the Greens and an Independent was found in the bins outside. Locals allege the activist in the video is Lynn Kleinman, the wife of the Tories candidate in the by-election, Robin Kleinman. A tweet posted by the local Stirling Tories group showing Lynn Kleinman on the campaign trail on the same day the CCTV footage was recorded has since been deleted. Another tweet from the Stirling Tories showing Robin Kleinman posing alongside a large black Newfoundland dog suspected to be the same dog as appears in the CCTV footage, has also been deleted. Lynn Kleinman, with an address in the Bridge of Allen, is listed as being the membership secretary of the Newfoundland Club on its website. Robin Kleinman is standing for election in the Dunblane and Bridge of Allen ward of Stirling Council. The seat was made vacant after SNP councillor Graham Houston passed away in December. As it stands, both the SNP and the Tories have seven seats on the Stirling Council, meaning the winner of the by-election will become the largest group. However, Labour controls Stirling Council after striking a deal with the Conservatives in the wake of the 2022 local elections. For political leaflets delivered by mail, the Postal Services Act 2000, which applies UK-wide, 
states, A person commits an offence if, without reasonable excuse, he intentionally delays or opens a postal packet in the course of its transmission by post. It's not known if the leaflets which were allegedly taken were delivered by post or by other parties' activists. The Scottish Conservatives have been approached for comment. And this article was written by Alexander Elliards. This is from The National on Friday the 10th of February from the Politics section. SNP would overtake Tories in snap general election, poll finds. This is written by Adam Robertson. A new poll has found that the Conservatives would become Westminster's third party behind the SNP in a snap election. A poll of 28,000 people for the Telegraph found that if there were an imminent general election, then the Tories would be left with fewer seats than the SNP. This would mean that Stephen Flynn would become the leader of the opposition. The figures from pollsters Find Out Now and Electoral Calculus report Labour winning 49% of the vote, while the Tories would win just 23%. The style of polling used means results could be calculated in individual seats. The SNP would win 50 MPs, according to the results, while the Tories would have just 45, down from 365. In response to the data, SNP Deputy Leader Keith Brown said, This poll shows that only the SNP can rid Scotland of Westminster Tory governments for good. As we know, Keir Starmer has no intention of reversing the Tories' greatest damaging policy, Brexit. While it is welcome to see the third poll in a matter of days showing huge support for the SNP, the projection that the SNP would become the official opposition at Westminster is another stark reminder of the current constitutional burak. With Labour now being fully paid up members of the hard Brexit club, Scotland will still have to suffer the deep and lasting consequences of leaving the EU. And as history shows, the only guaranteed result of a Westminster Labour government is the Tory government that replaces it. This comes after the National revealed support for Scottish independence is at its second highest level ever reached. Meanwhile, the new polling forecasts that Labour would gain 306 seats, taking its total number of MPs to a record 509 out of 650 available. Elsewhere, the Liberal Democrats would more than double their number of MPs from 11 to 23 while Plaid Cymru and the Greens would be unchanged at four MPs and one respectively. The polling was carried out from January the 27th to February the 5th before Rishi Sunak reshuffled his ministerial team. What about the Cabinet? On a seat-by-seat basis, 15 Cabinet ministers would lose their seats, including Rishi Sunak, Foreign Secretary James Cleverley, Home Secretary Suella Braverman and former Prime Ministers Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, as well as ex-Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. Chief Executive of Find Out Now, Chris Holbrook, told the newspaper that forecasts made shocking reading for the Conservatives. Martin Baxter, Chief Executive of Electoral Calculus, added, 
The Conservatives have been far behind in the polls for the last four months, with little sign of improvement. They have lost support across the country, particularly in traditionally strong Conservative areas, which bodes very badly for the next general election. That election could be a near wipeout and worse than 1997, with the Conservatives not even being the main opposition party. Former Tory leader Sir Ian Duncan Smith claimed that it is still quite a soft lead for Labour and that the current UK government could still influence voters by sorting out the small boats issue, dealing with the NHS crisis and cutting taxes to get growth going. That article was written by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Monday the 13th of February 2023. This is from the politics section. The headline reads, Craig Murray moves location amid row over Stuart MacDonald emails. This article is by Lucy Garcia. Former diplomat Craig Murray has claimed he has moved location to the Outer Hebrides amid a row over an SNP MP's hacked emails. Last week we told him Murray claimed to have copies of hacked emails belonging to Glasgow South MP Stuart MacDonald. MacDonald said he feared the documents would be made public after he fell victim to a phishing scam that he suggested may have come from Russian spy service. Days later, Murray, former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, said he had obtained the messages and that he would publish them, hinting that the cache contained correspondence between MacDonald and First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. And now, Murray has said he has moved location to the Outer Hebrides following a visit from police officers and claimed he had instructed lawyers to prepare a council's opinion on the legality of publishing the content of McDonald's emails. Writing on Twitter on Sunday night, Murray said, I am now happily in the Outer Hebrides. This makes it much harder to send the police to intimidate me, because A, they will have to find me, and B, I shall be too drunk to notice. In a later post on Monday morning, the diplomat added, This morning, lawyers are acting my request to prepare a council's opinion on the legality of publishing those of Stuart MacDonald's emails which are in the public interest to be revealed. This may take a day or two. Murray initially claimed he had gained access to the cache of correspondence after speaking to people to find out who might have them. The ex-diplomat was previously drilled over blog posts that could have identified Alex Salmon's accusers and last year lost a legal challenge against his prison sentence. The 63-year-old blogger and pro-independence campaigner detailed Salmon's High Court trial in 2020 and was later jailed for eight months for contempt of court. Prosecutors said the articles contained details which, if pieced together, could lead readers to identify the woman who made allegations against Alex Salmond, of which the former FM was acquitted. Lord Calloway rejected Murray's appeal, stating he showed a total lack of remorse over his actions. That article was by Lucy Garcia. This is from The National on Monday the 13th of February 2023. This is from the news section. The headline reads, Ministers splashed cash on luxury items through use of GPCs. This article is by Gregor Young. Ministers are facing accusations of overseeing a lavish spending culture in Whitehall that has seen taxpayers' money wasted on luxury items after a labour analysis of the use of government procurement cards, GPCs. Labour raised concerns about dining and alcohol purchases, including almost 
£345,000 by Foreign Office FCDO officials in 2021 under the heading Restaurants and Bars, as well as entertainment spending and evidence of end-of-year sprees to use up budgets. Deputy Leader Angela Rayner said the investigation into the use of GPCs revealed a scandalous catalogue of waste. The party has compiled a dossier on the use of cards which showed that across 2021, from 14 major Whitehall departments, a total of at least £145.5 million was spent using GPCs. That figure was up from £84.9 million in 2010-2011 in the equivalent departments, although around £20 million of the difference could be explained through inflation. But Transport Minister Richard Holden accused Labour of wasting civil servants' time on information already in the public domain. In the big picture, what was seen in 2010 is an 85% reduction in this, he told ITV's Good Morning Britain. All this data is publicly available online. It has been since 2012, something which didn't happen under the last Labour government. We publish it on a monthly basis. The Labour Party has spent half a million pounds asking parliamentary questions, 2,500 of them, wasting my civil servant's time for information that is already publicly available and that they hid when they were last in office. Labour's work examined the main Whitehall departments, apart from the Ministry of Defence, which the opposition claimed had not produced sufficiently comprehensive data. The dossier showed in 2021, £3.3 million was spent at office supply firm Banner, £1.51 million with Amazon, almost £415,000 at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, almost £238,000 at IKEA, nearly £106,000 at John Lewis and more than £101,000 at Apple. The biggest single supplier was BFS Group, provider of food to the prison service, with sales over £50 million worth of total of £54.9 million. On March 30th, 2021, when Rishi Sunak was Chancellor, the Treasury spent £3,393 buying 13 fine art photographs from the Tate Gallery to hang in the department's Horse Guards Road building, despite ministries having access to the government art collections pictures. Foreign Office GPCs were used to buy £23,457 of duty-free supplies from Dubai-based international diplomatic supplies, thought to be for the use of UK embassies overseas. But in the first 10 months of 2022, that level of spending jumped more than four times higher to £95,834. Several departments appear to be using GPCs to exhaust their budgets at the end of each financial year, including the Department of Health and Social Care spending £59,155 on items of stationery in March 2021, compared to just £1,470 in the whole of the rest of the year combined, and the Treasury spending £90,596 on training courses in March 2021, compared to an average of £38,357 in their 11 months of the year. Then Attorney General Suella Braverman and her Ukrainian counterpart visited fine dining Indian restaurant The Cinnamon Club in Westminster, along with six others, in May 2022 at a cost of £909, just under £114 a head. Between January 2021 and June 2022, the FCDO spent £36,000 £293 on items of fine bone china 
from Royal Crown Derby and £15,943 on items from the Royal Collection online shop, presumably to give us presents to foreign counterparts. From January 2021 to June 2022, the FCDO spent £11,853 at upmarket store of Fortnum Mason. Rayner said Britain may be facing the worst cost of living crisis for decades. But whether as Chancellor or Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak has failed to rein in the culture of lavish spending across Whitehall on his watch. Today's shocking revelations lift the lid on a scandalous catalogue of waste, with taxpayers' money frittered away across every part of government. While in the rest of the country, families are sick with worry about whether their paycheck will cover their next weekly shop or the next tranche of bills. Holden, who was quizzed about the spending details as he toured broadcast studios, called Labour's proposal for an office of value for money straight out of Yes Minister. I think the last thing we want to see at the moment is more Whitehall mandarins checking what other Whitehall mandarins are doing. What we want is stuff fully and transparently declared, and that's the direction we have moved in over the last few years. He said he was not going to attempt to justify every individual piece of government spending on these cards. As he suggested that Sunak was unlikely to have personally improved the Treasury spending on fine art photographs. I don't think any government minister would have been involved in that decision. What wouldn't normally happen is a spending of around £3,000 going over a minister's desk because if you did, that's what ministers would do on a daily basis. The rules of GPC use were relaxed at the start of the COVID pandemic, allowing individual cardholders to spend up to £20,000 per transaction and £100,000 per month and permitting the use of GPCs across all categories of spending. A senior Conservative source said, Awkwardly for Labour HQ, they've forgotten that they introduced these civil servant credit cards in 1997. By 2010, Labour was spending almost £1 billion of taxpayers' money on everything from dinners at Mr Chu's Chinese restaurant to luxury five-star hotels. The Conservatives swiftly stopped their absurd profligacy, cutting the number of cards, introducing a requirement for spending to be publicly declared and introducing controls. Typically, Labour's big idea is to spend millions to establish yet another quango, stuff it with thousands of bureaucrats and give them gold-plated pensions. That article was by Gregor Young. This is from The National on Monday the 13th of February 2023. This is from the news section. The headline reads, Two-thirds of Scots reject de facto referendum on independence. This article is by Xander Elliards. A clear majority of Scots reject the idea of using the next Westminster elections as a de facto referendum on independence, new polling has suggested. The latest survey, released on Monday, found two-thirds of people in Scotland, 67%, do not think a general election should be used as a de facto vote on independence. They agreed with the view that we cannot assume that every vote for the SNP or the Greens is a vote for Scottish independence. Just 21% of people said a Westminster election should be used as a de facto independence referendum. The split is more even among SNP voters, but the de facto referendum idea remains opposed by the plurality, 48% to 44%. Among those who voted yes in 2014, 41% backed the idea of a de facto vote, while 49% oppose it. The in-depth polling of 2,105 Scots aged 16 and over 
also suggested that the pro-independence side would be likely to lose such a de facto general election vote. It found that while the SNP would emerge as the largest party, they would win 40% of the vote, even with the combined support of the other Yes parties, the Greens polled at 5% and Alba at 2%. They would fall three points short of the 50% threshold. The polling suggested Labour would win 25% of the vote in a general election, the Tories 18% and the Lib Dems 6%. Reform UK, the Nigel Farage-founded party, which is seeing a surge in the polls south of the border as the Conservatives' language is not seeing the same success in Scotland. It polled at just 3%, compared to highs of 9% in the UK-wide polling. The survey, conducted by Lord Ascroft's polling, further suggested that no would have a clear lead over yes if a second independence referendum were held tomorrow. It found that 37% of people would vote yes, compared to 48% who would vote no. A total of 12% of people said they did not know how they would vote, while 3% said they would not vote. With these final two groups excluded, the polling suggested no would win a fresh independence referendum by 56% to 44%. The polling comes ahead of SNP's Special Democracy Conference, which will be held in Edinburgh on March 19th. The conference will see the party debate the route forward for the Yes movement and decide whether to treat the next general election as a de facto referendum. Other ideas proposed are for the next Westminster election to be used to win an explicit mandate for Indiref 2, or for Hollywood to be dissolved, forcing another vote which can be used as its own de facto referendum. That article was by Xander Elliards. This is from The National on Monday the 13th of February 2023. This is from the news section. The headline reads... Women sexually assaulted on train between Glasgow and Haymarket. This article is by Sarah Campbell. British Transport Police, BTP, are searching for a man following a sexual assault on a Glasgow train last month. Sometime between 4.15pm and 5pm on Friday, January 13th, a male passenger sat beside a female on a service between Glasgow Queen Street Station and Haymarket. He's then reported to have repeatedly touched her leg with his leg before putting his hand underneath his newspaper and touching the victim on her left leg with his hand. She said to have attempted to move her body towards the window, but the man again moved his leg so that it was pressed against hers. When the service reached Linlithgow, the woman changed seats and then later alighted at Haymarket. The man stayed on the train. BTP are now appealing for information into the incident and have released a description of an individual who they believe may have information that can help with their inquiry. He is described as Asian, tall and of medium build with black hair. He is wearing a dark jacket and blue jeans and is carrying a newspaper. Anyone with information is asked to contact BTP by calling 0800 405040 or by texting 61016 with reference 2300004611. Information can also be given anonymously to the independent charity Crime Stoppers on 0800-555-111. That article was by Sarah Campbell. From the National, Monday the 13th of February 2023, from the comment section, Andrew Tickle, Injustices Show Folly of Lee Anderson on Death Penalty, by Andrew Tickle. Oscar Slater didn't kill Marion Gilchrist. Stefan Kitsko didn't murder Leslie Molseed. 
Sally Clark and Donna Anthony and Angela Keenings weren't responsible for any of their children's deaths. On and on I could go. There was Tim Evans, hanged for John Christie's crime. Paddy Hill, Jerry Hunter, Johnny Walker, Billy Power, Dick McElkenny, Hugh Callahan. Tried and wrongfully convicted of planting bombs in two central Birmingham pubs in 1974, killing 21 and injuring many more. Then there were the Guildford Four. All of these innocent people spent long years of their lives in state custody, convicted by juries convinced that the evidence against them was compelling. In another age, in another jurisdiction, any one of them might have swung and never lived to see the injustice meted out against them corrected. Of the Birmingham Six, Lord Denning once lamented, We shouldn't have all these campaigns to get them released if they'd been hanged. They'd have been forgotten and the whole community would have been satisfied. And, in his brutally cynical way, Denning might just have been just about right. Confronted with the enormity of the crimes these men and women were accused of committing, and the public disgust aimed at those supposed killers of harmless pensioners, these terrorist cells and murderous mothers, you can understand why the social mood wasn't exactly forgiving. In the heightened atmosphere after a terrible crime, as public anxieties mount, the media goes wild and the police come under intense pressure pressure to catch a perpetrator, there's always a kind of collective catharsis that someone, anyone, has been detected, detained and put on trial. In that moment, the fact that you've got the raw man in custody doesn't seem to matter a great deal. Human societies have always created scapegoats. Social anxieties fall away in the most satisfactory way, even if the man or woman in the dock is wholly innocent of the crimes we've indicted them for. The moral order still feels like it's been restored. This term, I teach a course about the miscarriages of justice and why they happen. We began this week with the trial of Slater. Slater was sentenced to death in 1909 for the murder of Marion Gilchrist in her home in the west end of Glasgow. Slater was a German Jew with a loose lifestyle, various nom de plume, an ex-wife and a lady of the night as his domestic partner. Prosecution's case was that Slater had somehow gained access to the 82-year-old West Princess Street flat and had brutally done her to death, making off with a crescent-shaped diamond brooch from her dresser. Slater didn't match any of the eyewitnesses' descriptions of the man who stepped out of Kilkes flats, given, respectively, by witnesses who saw him fleetingly from behind, a visually impaired neighbour who wasn't wearing his spectacles, and a young woman who saw a running man briefly illuminated in a pool of gaslight on a bleak December night in Glasgow. When it transpired that Slater had recently pawned a diamond brooch, the police were convinced they'd found their man. Banging down his door, they discovered that he'd done a bunk, taking the train for Liverpool then a fourth a ship for America. Convinced this was a flight from justice, they telegraphed ahead. Slater was detained by the American authorities and shipped back to Scotland for the trial. He must have been confident of his acquittal. He didn't know Gilchrist. He had alibis for before, during and after her murder. Nothing incriminating had been found in his personal effects, and, critically, that diamond brooch which led the police to his door? It wasn't Gilchrist after at all. What was left was a paper-thin circumstantial case based on contradictory eyewitness reports, gingered up by Presbyterian society's antipathy to what it appears to be the gross moral turpitude of this religious and ethnic outsider and stranger. The police, nevertheless, were convinced they'd got their man, Prosecuting, the Lord Advocate gave an inflammatory and inaccurate speech. From the judge's chair, 
Lord Guthrie told the jury that a man like Slater didn't benefit from the presumption of innocence. After the jury's guilty verdict, Guthrie sentenced him to death. The National Records of Scotland still keep the macabre little prison notebook, which is HMP Peter Pinhead Warders kept tabs on the prisoner's appetite to ensure the rope for Slater's long drop was to cut the right length for his weight. Hanging a man seems barbaric enough, but when there's something particularly ghoulish, and with all the practical and human apparatus, which supposedly civilises this official kind of murder. Slater didn't die, but his late reprieve left him incarcerated for 19 long years of hard labour before the new appeal court finally quashed his conviction in 1927. Almost a century after Slater was released, Step forward the new Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party. Lee Anderson, like Pity Patel before him, seems intentionally relaxed about imposing the ultimate sanction on potentially innocent people if it wins him a sympathetic write-up from the feral media. We should be savvy about the PR game being played at her expense and how it is played. The Northamshire MP has already an established reputation for being bluff, club and reactionary. True to form, in an interview last week, he voiced his support for the restoration of the death penalty on the basis that nobody has ever committed a crime after being executed. You know that, don't you? 100% success rate. The euphemism for politicians like Anderson is outspoken. On one level, Anderson's appointment as a key media proxy for the Conservative Party can only be read as a sign of Sunak's weakness, personally and politically. Lacking the common touch himself, he has been forced to genuflect the fragile swing of the party, which has now been folded back into their voting base after the demise of UKIP. With Anderson, Sunak knows what he's getting, a chain reaction of headlines. He embodies the tendency for owning the libs to become the key priority in right-wing political communication. It isn't about communication, communicating policy ideas or a positive political agenda, but winding up your opponents. As political strategy goes, it's essentially trolling in a certain tie. And for the public, the message is, the people you hate hate me. Vote Tory. When the EU withdrawal agreement finally staggered over the line, some knackered Remainers consoled themselves with the thought that Britain's departure from the European Union would at least draw a line onto the cultural conflict. There would be no more Boris Johnsons, propelled into power by tall tales about bendy bananas and barring Brussels regulations. UKIP would be defanged. Having got everything they wanted, the xenophobe right would head off for a snooze, satiated, dreaming of nothing more sinister than a return to imperial measures and dimpled pint glasses. This prediction seems desperately naive at the time. Experience has exposed just how daft it was. Barely a week goes by in British politics without the Tories trying to parlay some kind of European conflict back into public affairs. Sometimes this is Northern Ireland, mostly still immigration, asylum and boats. Last week, sources close to Sunak hinted darkly that the ECHR withdrawal might still be contemplated. And now these beastly Europeans are preventing us rolling out a socially improving scheme of public executions. I know these are deeply unserious people. I know that Anderson's remarks are just bait, and I've gulped it down, line and sinker. But be serious about what they're saying. When you hear loudmouth populist politicians advocating the restoration of the death penalty, Ask them about Oscar Slater. Ask them about Clark, convicted of the murder of her two baby sons after an incompetent home office pathologist repressed scientific evidence suggesting they both died of natural causes and knighted paediatrician Sir, John Meadow, Sir Roy Meadow 
took it upon himself to enter the witness box to tell the jury that the chances of Kurt's family experiencing two court debts were 73 million to one. This was statistically bogus and outside Meadows' expertise, but it was enough for Kurt to be convicted. Public vilification and three years of imprisonment followed before the cracks in the prosecution case were revealed and Kurt's convictions were quashed. Like many victims of wrongful convictions, she died young just a few years later. Asked him about the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four. As journalist Chris Mullen pointed out last week, the wrong people were convicted of the main IRA bombings of the mid-70s in the UK. Would justice be served by 18 graves full of the bones of 18 innocent men? These are real people, real lives and real injustices. Not a punchline for a clown. And that comment piece was by Andrew Tickle. From the National, Wednesday the 15th of February 2023, from the comment section, Nicola Sturgeon proved critics wrong, she was never a careerist. By we, by we Ginger Doug, columnist, Jeremy Corbyn won't stand as a Labour candidate. Labour leader Keir Starman has announced that former leader Jeremy Corbyn will not stand as a Labour candidate at the next general election. The announcement came as the Equality and Human Rights Commission EHRC removed the special measures which the party had been placed in following the row and allegations of anti-Semitism. In a clear sign that Starmer intends to move on from the Corbyn era and snap his own considerably more Blairite mark on the party, he invited those MPs who have long supported Corbyn to leave the party if they did not agree with the direction Labour is going in. It's a clear sign for those of us in Scotland that the only choice the British state gives us is between unapologetic Tories and apologetic Tories of blue Labour. Labour's brief fling with more overtly socialist politics is well and truly over. Sources in the party have made it clear that should Corbyn decide to stand as an independent against the official Labour candidate, if the momentum campaign associated with his leadership chooses to support him, it will be proscribed as an organisation in the same way that Militant once was. And Corbyn's supporters in Labour are already finding that the party is moving against them. Glasgow councillor Matt Kerr failed party vetting in the city south meaning the seat for the next general election will be taken by Dr Zubir Ahmed, a schoolmate and neighbour of Anna Sarwar. Needless to say, this has led to accusations of an anti-left-wing stitch-up. Combined with the recent announcement that Douglas Alexander has been selected as a Labour candidate, Starmer will well get his blade-out wish. Nicola Sturgeon resigns, but the only story in town in Scottish politics is the sudden resignation of Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister. Even for those who dislike her, there can be no doubt that Sturgeon is a towering figure in Scottish politics and even more than eight years as First Minister, she still enjoys approval ratings that her opponents can only dream of. There were fleetly rumours of her incoming resignation, but the announcement when it came was a shock to most. It is very much the end of an era in Scottish politics. At a press conference to announce her resignation, the outgoing First Minister categorically denied that her decision had anything to do with recent controversies, such as the heated, an often bad-tempered debate about gender recognition certificates and refused to be drawn in questions about whether it had anything to do with the ongoing police investigation into the party's finances. She insisted that her decision had nothing to do with those short-term political pressures, noting that she had dealt with immense political pressures in the past. There are indeed plentiful examples, such as the Salmon trial and subsequent investigation into what she did or did not know and dealing with the Covid pandemic. Such pressures, she noted, are very much part and parcel of the job. 
She hinted in her resignation speech at the immensely personal toll that being a, such a high-pressure job takes on an individual on a human level. Of course, being in a high-profile political job means that your actions and views become open to public scrutiny and criticism. That is part and parcel of a functioning democracy. However, Sturgeon has been subjected to an intense, constant and unceasing barrage of criticism, not all of it justified, and much of which has been unnecessarily and unpleasantly personal. Some of which have versed into this deeply nasty abusiveness, going way beyond anything that's normal back and forth of politics. This kind of attack is bad enough when it comes to your particular opponents, but the psychologically it is far more difficult to shrug off when it comes from those you're supposed to be on your side. But she has dealt with those attacks with a personal dignity that is alien to those who resort to crude personal abuse against her. Sturgeon settled recognised that she had come to embody division and divisiveness in her resignation speech. I suspect she was not referring to the divisions between die-hard British nationalists as, and independence supporters, but rather to the divisions within the independence movement. As we approach a critical moment in the campaign for independence, a historic decision on how to proceed in the face of the anti-democratic intransigence of the Anglo-British Brexit parties, the need for unity within an independence campaign has never been more vital. It is the Sturgeon's immense credit that she has the personal and political maturity to recognise that much-needed unity cannot be achieved while she remains as leader of the SNP and First Minister of Scotland. But one thing is certain, those critics who decried her as a careerist have been comprehensively proven wrong. And that was a comment piece by Wee Ginger Doug. From The National, Wednesday the 15th of February 2023, from the comment section, Why rejoining the EU would revitalise Scotland's rural areas? By Alan Smith Scotland's rural areas are not only some of the most picturesque parts of our country, but also some of our most vital areas for future prosperity and opportunities. So it was a pleasure to welcome a group of Scotland's rural leaders to Westminster last week to talk about how politics and rural affairs interlink. I had helped with sponsoring the programme during my time in the European Parliament and I was delighted to help again, albeit in a more archaic environment. The Scottish Rural Leadership Programme is funded by Scottish enterprise agencies and takes a group of people who are heading up businesses and organisations in rural areas through a personal and professional development programme. As part of the six-month experience, they also participate in a three-day visit to Edinburgh and London to learn more about the world of government and politics, meeting with representatives from both governments. They also used to visit Brussels too, but then the UK decided to leave the European Union. Yet another example of where the UK leaving the room is harming our businesses and opportunities. After they had been shown around Westminster, we sat down with the group for an in-depth cross-party discussion. If time had allowed us, I think we would all have been happy to stay there all day helping us answer their questions, queries and concerns. As I've reiterated to them, shy wains get no sweeties, and it could only be a good thing for further engagement between Scotland's politicians and rural areas. I then had to hot-foot it from one great group of rural leaders to another in Glasgow for the National Farmers Union of Scotland's conference. Again, it was good to see familiar faces and meet new ones too. Why though am I talking about rural affairs? Not only because Stirling has a large rural contingent, my constituency covers an area bigger than Luxembourg, but because I passionately believe our rural areas play a vital role in the economy and security of our country. 
I spent a lot of time in the European Parliament's Agricultural Committee back in my Brussels days. Call it agriculture, and only so many people are interested. Call it food security, call it land management, call it science and technology, and all of a sudden you realise that rural issues should be much higher up the political agenda. This is especially so after the pandemic and Putin's renewed invasion of the Ukraine. The UK imports the majority of its food, while fertiliser and fuel for machinery are also subject to global price swings. Scotland may not have as much agricultural land as other parts of Europe, but the products we produce are often of excellent quality, commanding high prices. Equally, the pandemic resulted in a population shift as people moved out of the cities into the countryside. Not only did this equate to an increase in the house prices alongside large, outside large cities, but also showed it's possible for many jobs to be done remotely or through hybrid working. Many came to realise remote working could spell an end to their need to commute and the higher costs associated with city living. All of this means our rural communities are at a pivotal moment. The cost of living crisis is also a cost of business crisis for many of our farmers and rural businesses. The loss of EU funding only served to exacerbate this situation. When we were part of the EU, under the Common Agricultural Policy, there was a seven-year multi-annual financial framework, so governments and farmers could plan ahead. Now it's, it is yearly budgets, and the UK is giving no clarity whatsoever on how much will be available to Edinburgh to support these vital industries. An alternative is possible, but it won't happen under a UK government which prioritises the economy of a small part of the UK. The potential is there with the sound investment in our telecoms and infrastructure, but the meagre powers of devolution reluctantly handed to us by the UK are insufficient for the task at hand. In the past, EU funding was transformative in the opening of our rural areas and improving infrastructure. In the future, an independent Scotland and Europe will be well placed to take advantage of the opportunities of the ongoing digital revolution. Whether it is farmers getting a fair price for their food, hospitality services delivering a rip-roaring tourism trade, or our rural communities being reinvigorated with an expanded population, bringing wealth, jobs and families, independence in Europe will help deliver a better future for Scotland's rural areas. And that was a comment piece by Alan Smith. From the National, Wednesday the 15th of February 2023. From the News section, Praise for LGBT community as Nicola Sturgeon's tenure comes to an end. By Ross Hunter. Nicola Sturgeon's recognition comes at a time of great uncertainty for Scotland's gender reform legislation. The UK government's decision to issue a Section 35 order and block the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill from becoming law has put transgender rights at the front and centre of Scottish politics. However, requests for ministers for further specific detail on what the UK government would like to see change in the bill have gone largely unanswered. Nicola Sturgeon has stood resolutely behind the reform of gender recognition in Holyrood, despite fierce criticism from the opposition, campaign groups and even members of her own party. But LGBT plus people are expressing concern that a change in leadership could result in less resolute support for the bill, particularly if a certain candidate emerges victorious in a leadership race. Kate Forbes's FM Finance Secretary Kate Forbes is touted as one of the favourites to take over as First Minister and has made a big impression since becoming a minister. But in 2019, she was one of the 15 SNP politicians who signed an open letter calling on the Scottish Government 
to delay its commitment to reforming the Gender Recognition Act. At the time, she said that MSPs should not rush into changing the definition of male and female. Last year, when asked if her views had changed on the subject, she said that they had not. My views remain the same, which is that we need to ensure we are listening to all voices, she told Hollywood magazine. I'm not sure we've managed to achieve what I hope we might, which is a, a more intelligent and informed and fair discussion that allowed people to express their views without being shut down. This is an issue that's bigger than a political bubble. It's an issue that mums and dads ask me about in relation to their children or their schools. I think a lot of people feel disenfranchised from the discussion and that does not lend itself to making good law. A recent poll by the Sunday Times saw Forbes come out as a favourite to replace Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister. But Eoghan McMillan, member of the Out for Independence, the LGBT plus wing of the SNP, told the National that he had concerns about the prospect of Kate Forbes becoming First Minister. By all accounts, she has some quite socially conservative views, he said. She seems to have some opposition to trans rights. This is not progressive. And the thing is, if she was elected First Minister, it wouldn't take her doing a U-turn in gender reform policy to have a negative effect. It would be very easy to let things just lose momentum. Forbes is also a member of the Free Church of Scotland, an organisation which does not support gay marriage and believes that there are very few circumstances when abortion is justified. Indeed, a comment made by Forbes on abortion in 2018 drew criticism from abortion rights campaigners. During an appearance at the National Prayer Breakfast for Scotland, Forbes said, May our politicians recognise the way we treat the most vulnerable, whether the unborn or the terminally ill, is a measure of true progress. This aspect of our politics is also raising eyebrows. I think Forbes being First Minister would be a concern, said Daniel, a 26-year-old teacher. I don't think necessarily think things would go backwards for LGBT plus people, but how can you expect support and commitment in fighting for LGBT issues when her beliefs are, and that of her church, deny my right to manage and a woman's right to abortion? If Forbes does decide to throw her name into the hat to become the next First Minister, her views on LGBT plus rights and abortion are likely to face scrutiny. For the moment, though, many are expressing their sadness at losing Nicola Sturgeon as a prominent LGBT plus ally in Scotland. I think it's a sad day for Scotland that such an immensely capable politician, so across her brief, and a source of stability and reassurance in frankly bewildering, turbulent and toxic times, feels the need to step back from leading our country, comedian Stokes God Agnew told The National. It's a particularly sad day for LGBTQ people in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon has been the architect of a more inclusive and progressive SNP, Scottish Government and wider independence movement. I hope that would continue under the new leader and that any drift to the right would be resisted by the party. LGBTQ people will not forget the loss of such a tireless champion so easily. And that column was by Ross Hunter. From the National... Thursday the 16th of February 2023 From the politics section Four terrible UK media takes on Nicola Sturgeon's resignation by the Joker During Nicola Sturgeon's resignation speech she highlighted the brutality of contemporary political discourse and how it contributed to her decision to step down As such one could be forgiven for thinking that the media might have taken a step back and considered whether the reporting on the First Minister's exit was rational 
and appropriately balanced with pro-independence voices. Predictably, that has not been the case. Decapitation cartoon, in a rather vivid, vivid portrayal of the aforementioned brutality of political discourse, the independence political cartoon shows a beheaded Nicola Sturgeon. Cartoonist Dave Brown depicted the First Minister in full Highland regalia playing the bagpipes in the middle of a glen, accompanied only by her own severed head. It would appear that pleas for the UK media not to contribute to a culture of violence against politicians are being ignored by some outlets. Nicole Sturgeon After eight years as First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon might well have thought that the BBC would be capable of remembering her name. Unfortunately, judging by the description of the Jeremy Vine show in the BBC Sounds app, this is not the case. It read, Nicole Sturgeon and love bombing. Evidently, the love bombing is not in reference to the First Minister. Ruth Wishart, definitely not a columnist for the National. This week's episode of Question Time will no doubt pour over the political situation in the aftermath of Nicholas Sturgeon's resignation. Alongside Labour MP Stephen Kinnock and Tory Minister Robert Jenrick, three journalists will also appear on the programme. They are Private High Editor Ian Hislop, Spectator columnist like Lino Shriver and the National's own columnist Ruth Wishart. Unfortunately, the BBC decided to ignore Wishart's weekly musings in the Sunday National and described her simply as a Scottish journalist and broadcaster who has written for The Scotsman, The Herald and The Guardian. Openly pointing out that a journalist writes for a pro-independence newspaper clearly violates the BBC's impartiality policies. Leslie Riddick on the BBC In order to balance out the views of former Scotland editor and columnist for the Daily Telegraph, Alan Cochrane, on the Jeremy Vine Soap Show on Radio 2, the BBC invited on another of the National's columnists, Lazy Riddick. And it's a good thing they did because Cochrane's views about independence, including calling the SNP's upcoming special conference stupid, were certainly in need of challenging. When asked whether he thought the Sturgeon's exit was a blow to the independence cause, Cochrane said, It's a blow to a party that was already suffering from a sharp reduction in its support. The independence argument is going nowhere anyway, and it won't be helped by Nicola's departure. She's leaving the party in a terrible mess. When Vine asked Riddick if she felt this assessment was correct, she answered, No. The fact that we're actually having a discussion about the Scottish story for two days running, not being funny on the BBC, is actually quite extraordinary. She was that large a figure. But what's starting to happen is that most people, unionist opponents included, are praising Nicola Sturgeon and trying to bury independence, and that actually isn't going to follow. Because those of us that are committed to independence, it's not a wee teenage phase. We're not going back in the box. There will be a new leader found and we'll have to try and circumvent the incredible obstacles that have been put in place by the Westminster government. Next time, perhaps, the BBC shouldn't just leave it up to Riddick to comment any rampant disinformation about the independence movement being dead. Have we missed any? Let us know. And that column was by the Joker. Run a national? Thursday the 16th of February 2023, from the politics section, Glasgow Labour slammed as councillors walk out of budget vote, by Hamish Morrison, political reporter. Glasgow Labour councillors have been slated by their opponents after walking out of the city's budget vote. The stunt, which saw all members of the Glasgow City Council Labour Group forfeit their, their vote to join trade unionists protesting outside the local authority headquarters, 
was described as showing the party as not being fit to run a bath. Glasgow Labour said they were protesting the SNP's management of the council, adding that the party had treated the city with contempt. A cost-cutting budget was passed by the ruling SNP Greens Coalition, which will see council tax hiked by 5% in city residents, while visitors to the Botanic Gardens glasshouses in the West End will be charged for entry in an effort to plug a £49 million hole in Glasgow's finances. In a statement, Glasgow Labour leader George Raisman said, Enough is enough. For too long, the SNP government has treated Glasgow with contempt. That they are now planning £400 million of cuts is unacceptable. Glasgow Labour will simply have no part in a budget process which will wreak havoc on our city and damage those most in need. Not a single SNP or Green MSP was willing to listen to Labour and fight against the cuts, including the outgoing First Minister. The silence from SNP and Green MSPs is deafening. Our communities rely on these services and they're willing to turn the other cheek. Glasgow deserves better. But the stunt was criticised by their opponents, with SNP councillor Alex Wilson accusing Labour councillors of abdicating responsibility. He tweeted, Shocking dereliction of duties from Glasgow Labour. We have come to expect Labour to hide when there's going to get stuff, but to vanish altogether is a new level. Difficult decisions are what you're elected on. Do not walk away from the people you say you represent. Green and Tory councillors also walked out of the meeting after making speeches. City Treasurer Ricky Bell said the budget was deeply imperfect, but insisted it was necessary in the most turbulent economic and financial context most people can remember. And he criticised opposition groups who didn't present alternative proposals, saying the SNP did not have the luxury of throwing up our hands and walking away. Tory councillor Thomas Kerr said it was yet another day where Glaswegians will be asked to pay more and get less. He added, Nicola Sturgeon is going, but her contemptuous attitude to councils looks set to continue in the SNP. Top SNP spin doctor Murray Foote replied to a picture of vacant Labour benches in the city chambers with the comment, When the going gets tough, the tough flounce off and abandon their responsibilities, Labour demonstrating they are not fit to run a bath, let alone a council. Defending the SNP budget, Bell said, This is not the budget any of us would wish to deliver but it is one which is going a considerable distance to protect and maintain these services upon which our communities depend. He announced the plans to raise council tax by 5% for 2023-24, meaning a band household will pay £1,499 to bring in an extra £12 million. The council will also take £6 million from reserves. That left £31.3 million to be found through savings and increased charges, there will be £3 million raised through the increased parking and bus lanes fines and £2 million is expected to be brought in through the introduction of gar- charges for garden and waste- food waste permits. On-street parking fees will rise in line with Edinburgh levels, Bell said, and there will be a cost increase for multiple residential parking permits. The city's treasurer added almost £1 million will be saved through a review of bin service resources. Opening hours will be reduced at Tramway and the Mitchell Library, as well as swimming pools, while high charges will be rolled out at peak times at the outdoor tennis venues. Bell said there would be no compulsory redundancies, teacher numbers would be protected, and increased charges were preferable to slashing services. And that report was by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Thursday the 16th of February 2023, from the comment section, 
With Nicola Sturgeon going, it's time SNP adopted a different approach. Article by Leslie Riddock, columnist. So the day has finally come that some dreaded, some longed for, and opponents positively fantasised about. Nicola Sturgeon has quit as First Minister. Even writing those words seemed quite unreal. She has been a fixture in Scottish politics for so long in the almost nine years she spent at the top, seeing off four Prime Ministers, and in the symbolic weight of those years, which is far greater. Life before Sturgeon now feels like a bygone era, one where independence didn't seem remotely possible, where the constitutional question didn't hang over every single issue, where charlatans like Boris Johnson only wreaked havoc in the limited arena of the London of the London Mayor, where Covid had not transformed lives, and the climate emergency was still a matter of debate, and, of course, former boss Alex Salmond and herself were in speaking terms and in the same party. The fact of her political demise as First Minister will strike everyone differently, but, as with all unexpected departures, the news brings to mind a kaleidoscope of energies. The focused, dynamic Deputy SNP leader who reduced the then Scottish Secretary Alistair Carmichael to a blubbering wreck on STV's independence route debate with Help Me Rona trending on social media as her well-trained legal mind took a sloppy unionist case apart. The triumphant, well-dressed, tiny figure in the hydro at the end of the post-referendum defeat tour of Scotland assured the tens of thousands present that the dream would stay alive. The constant figure every day during the long, weird, unsettling years of Covid lockdown providing reassurance and easier to understand explanations. In stark contrast to the customary absence or unnerving boosterish presence of the blethering Boris Johnson. The well-prepared, impossible to perturb figure at Holyrood dispatch box, putting successive Tory leaders in their place as they criticise Scottish progress in the face of their own Westminster cuts, and gently, then not so gently, reminding Labour leaders, especially the unfortunate Richard Leonard, that the subject of his latest complaint was a Westminster, not a Holyrood competence. And I have my own memory of the first time Sturgeon addressed this Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik in 2016, delivering a keynote lecture that produced a standing ovation, exceptionally rare for, for normally reserved Nordic, Nordic civil leaders and politicians, easily outshining our higher status fellow speaker Ban Ki-moon, then UN Secretary-General. Afterward, she stood patiently as a massive queue of people, mostly feisty, progressive female political leaders, shuffled forward to shake her hand and grab a quick word. Despite what the detractors may say, and on certain issues I admit to being one, Nicola Sturgeon has an incredible presence, represents a kind of social democracy with which most of Northern Europe identifies, and, in her David vs Goliath struggle to have Scotland's democratic will acknowledged by another independence referendum, she has earned nothing but respect across most of Britain and the world. Like Jacinda Ardern, who resigned a few weeks ago, these two modern women, along with Finland's Sanna Marin, have put their small countries on the map by talking with empathy and conviction not empty managerial soundbites. Sturgeon talked repeatedly in her resignation address about the strain of a job that can only be done at full tilt and with 100% energy and attention. That's true, and I guess even more difficult for a woman who was, initially, very shy. I remember her contesting the SNP leadership for the first time around 2003, when her lack of pizzazz and presence meant she was trailing other candidates, which so unnerved Salmond, he returned to Scottish politics to stand in a joint slate as leader, shielding Nicola and letting her grow as a politician. This stood in stark contrast to Labour, with anyone who failed the party being simply cast in a scrap heap. I don't think shyness ever left her, 
despite the familiarity of those COVID press conferences and her grudging, joking acceptance of Janie Godley's sweary versions of her podium chats, complete with clicky pain. Perhaps this was temperamental shyness that drove her into the guarded, closeted leadership style where no one in the party has much input to decision making except a few confidants within her office and, of course, her husband and the SNP's chief executive, Peter Murrow. This created a double whammy and over-centralisation of power that turned the SNP conferences into uneasy corporate gatherings, sweeping genuine debate and internal democracy under the carpet. The SNP say that Murrow will stay, will stay as chief executive, I've got to say that seems like the worst of all possible worlds, as the chief representative of the, of the old guard stands watch over the election of the new, and that's before any discussion of loans and earmarked campaigning accounts. The only virtue of Sturgeon is, is going as a fresh start. Morel shouldn't make her big personal gesture of standing down to allow a genuine debate over future strategy hasn't been made in vain. But for some, these will be secondary issues. The difficulty for indie campaigners will be separating the cause from its most internationally rec- recognisable advocate, someone who made headlines and didn't mince words. Indeed, during a short contribution to David Lammy's programme on the LBC, I suggested that his question about her status was best answered by, her, by his own introduction, A Historic Day in UK Politics. Nicola was taken that seriously and respected that much, especially by political opponents, with the wit and grace not to present like a gleeful Douglas Ross. Of course, all sorts of questions now appear. Is the de facto referendum idea and indeed the March special conference going ahead or dead in the water? Is Kate Forbes, Angus Robertson, Stephen Flynn or someone else the main leadership contender? And can the question of leadership be addressed after some long postponed and long overdue straight talking inside the SNP? Or will it all be huckled along? Please God no. It's time for everyone unhappy with the grin and bear it school of SNP leadership to say enough is enough and adopt a different approach to the next chapter of the independence story right now. But in the meantime, Nicola has left on her own terms and she's left in a high. Scotland's straight and public service nonetheless deliver outcomes that are consistently higher than UK averages. We've got used to that, but such a short time back it just wasn't so. She'll be a very hard act to follow. Let's hope there's genuine, vigorous election process, not a coordination, and any perceived restrictions on excellent Westminster candidates are also lifted. Pronto. And that column was by Leslie Riddick. From the National. Thursday the 16th of February, 2023. From the comment section. After Nicola Sturgeon, what economics should new SNP leader promote? By Professor Richard Murphy. The unanticipated resignation of Nicola Sturgeon as leader of the SNP leaves a void at the heart of the SNP. Whatever Sturgeon might have said during the announcement of her resignation, such has been the scale of her authoritarian control of the party that those with talent, with alone an original thought, have been kept as far away from power as she can manage. Just look at the enormous efforts made to keep Joanna Cherry at Westminster to find evidence of that. When it comes to economics, this void is even more apparent than it is in most issues. Sturgeon's own beliefs on this subject always appear to be deeply conventional if, that was, she had any. By far the most notable economic announcement of Sturgeon's leadership period was that which came from the Growth Commission, 
that she appointed and which reported in 2018. The opinion that it had to offer, written by its chair Andrew Wilson, was profoundly right-wing. It supported the neoliberal hegemony that delivered austerity, low growth and limited government to the UK as a whole, and offered more of the same for Scotland post-independence as a result of its proposal that a newly independent Scotland should make use of the pound for an indefinite period. The SNP's membership rejected this desperate outlook for Scotland at a conference in 2019 as a result of a resolution tabled by Dr Tim Rideout, in the drafting of which I played a small role. Sturgeon's response was consistent. She simply ignored the party's resolution as if it never happened. As for other economic issues, Sturgeon rarely, if ever, rose to the challenges she faced. For example, she inexplicably permitted the continued publication of the Government Expenditure and Revenue Scotland GERS, statement as if it was a useful source of data on the economic position of the government in Scotland when it was anything but that. Worse, Sturgeon was hardly ever heard criticising the economic settlement provided for Scotland by devolution. Nor did she, as I would have expected from, of any leader committed to independence, critique it whenever she could so that she could highlight how she and her party could offer something very much better if only Scotland were independent. Instead, she resigned herself and her ministers to managing the inadequate funding provided to them within the right framework of devolved taxation that was always designed to make it very hard for the Scottish Government to deliver the services that it should have wanted to supply to, to the people of the country and which they deserved. Now the SNP will have to choose a new leader from amongst those ministers who have worked within the system, assuming that no one holding office as an MP will have much chance of taking the top job. In that case, what are the issues I would expect a candidate hoping to win should address? Let me offer five. The first would be a promise that the Growth Commission will be consigned to history and that any party of the lead will show its confidence in the future of Scotland by promising that it will use its own new currency within weeks or months at, at most of the day when the independence is achieved. Then, secondly, they should set out a radical economic plan for Scotland as an independent country following independence, based not on what conventional market e- economics is, but what the people of Scotland need. If they need a blueprint to look no further than the plan published recently by Commonweal called Sorted. Third, the person wanting to be the new leader must commit to a life beyond GERS. In other words, they must reject the view of Scotland imposed upon them by Westminster, stop making excuses for it, and instead begin to develop a distinctly Scottish approach to economic reporting that is internally consistent, which GERS is not, is based on proper accounting principles, which GERS is not, and which uses Scottish data, which should now be collected where it's presently unavailable, almost certainly deliberately. Scotland must have decent economic data. Nothing else will do. Fourth, the new Prime Minister must make it their job to improve the devolution settlement, as well as fight for independence. Whatever happens on independence, we can hope that devolution is here to stay, and right now that deal is hopelessly inadequate. To make a Scottish tax system work, the Holyrood government needs control of many more taxes, including corporation tax, national insurance, capital gains tax, inheritance taxes and other wealth taxes. Taxes never work in isolation. They are designed as a system as a whole if they are to work properly, and Scotland has to have control of the system if devolved taxes are ever to work properly. Finally, the new First Minister has to have a vision of not only what can be done, but also what should be done. 
in support of this, they should never stop reminding Scotland of what it cannot have because Westminster were not permitted. This, of course, does not apply to economics alone, but unless the economic argument is made relentlessly, the idea that there is a better alternative to what exists now, and that the current feelings are the result of the desperate thinking of the Westminster-focused parties, will never be created. Is all of that possible? Of course it is, although the new First Minister might need some good advisers to make it possible. But perhaps it is more realistic to ask if any of this is likely. That depends on SNP members making the right noises now. They have the chance. It is time to do so. And that article was by Professor Richard Murphy. That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Q and Review and to tell your friends about our service.